This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 19th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. Kim Jong-il is dead, but what does he leave behind, and whose problem is North Korea now? Doug Bandow, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, was once an invited visitor to North Korea. He comments. This is a very regimented society, and much of what they do is choreographed. They have these mass games, and they flip cards and change colors. So they, and they view it as a showcase. They are convinced this shows their country as being great and something to be emulated. So with the, the weeping, part of that, I suspect, is genuine. People have no idea what to expect. They've been told this leadership is wonderful. We saw some of that with the Stalin era. But also, a lot of it is expected. I mean, if you want to survive in that regime, you have to demonstrate you're loyal to it. And one element of loyalty is to uh, act as if you believe this is a godlike man who died, a man who is essentially your father who is looking after you. In a soci- society like this, with the politics that they have, as well as the regimentation and the choreography, you come up with a spectacle which in the West would be beyond understanding. And that's what we're seeing today. What, what does he leave behind? What does Kim Jong-il leave? Well, the North Korean political system is based upon myth. I mean, the, the myth of uh, Kim Il-sung, who was the first leader, he was, in fact, a guerrilla fighter, but he wasn't the man they claimed him to be. Kim Jong-il, you know, the biography says he was born on a sacred mountain. He wasn't. He was born in Siberia during World War II. You know, so myth-making is, is kind of what this regime is based on. But what he leaves behind, of course, is an impoverished country, a desperately poor people. They're hungry again. They're desperate for food aid. This is a system that's followed a policy called military first. Much of its resources are poured into an oversized military, large army, as well as a nuclear program. Everything is built around the state. You know, the exaltation of the state, and then the dear leader was the representative of the Korean people as part of that state. But he leaves behind, you know, death and destruction. I mean, his country, his countrymen have suffered greatly because of his reign. A story that sticks out in my mind that uh, occurred in North Korea just a couple of years ago was a massive devaluation of the currency, and it led some people to, as as far as we know, kill themselves. They thought that they were uh, engaging in some sort of savings, that they thought that they could actually begin to make plans for their own lives, and uh, this was uh, absolutely devastating to, to a lot of people there. Well, the regime wants absolute power. You know, after the uh, famine of the late 90s, at least a half million people died. You saw a real loosening of state authority. You saw greater numbers of refugees fleeing, informal trade across the Yalu, refugees leaving the country, a number of things happening. There's some evidence that they've really tried to reverse that and tried to strengthen the state. The devaluation may very well have been the mechanism by which they wanted to stamp out and reduce the power of traders of people who were all kind of in the black market, who were making money, and they had stored up resources, they had saved. And that devaluation basically stole all of that cash. It was very destructive, but it may very well have been very useful for the regime. So if you're looking at it from the regime standpoint, they want no opposition. People saving their own money, people making plans for the future is very dangerous. They wanted to end that. The one thing that we continue to hear over and over in uh, media reports about uh, Kim Jong-il's third son, who is like to be his successor, is how little we actually know about him. Uh, and it's just sketchy details from when he was uh, very young. And all we really know is that he uh, likes basketball and is, is passionate about a few hobbies, but we don't know, have any idea 
who he is otherwise. We actually know very little about any member of the Kim family. I mean, everything is based on myth. We don't know how many wives Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il had. We don't know if they were wives or consorts. We don't know how many children they've had. We don't know how many illegitimate kids might be floating around out there. We don't know the status of all their relatives. This is a system based on secrecy. Kim Jong-un, the son, is no different. The only contact we've had with him, the West has had, was when he was in Switzerland in prep school. This is more than 10 years ago. He liked basketball and Michael Jordan then. Who knows what he likes today? He's been kept off by himself in North Korea, no contact. He was only unveiled, you know, to the public of North Korea about a year ago when he was anointed to take over from his father. We don't know anything about his thinking processes, nor do we really know where he stands in the leadership. He's only had two or three years to try to start gaining power. It took his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, 20 years to make Kim uh, Jong-il his successor. So I think we're likely to see a power struggle. In the end, Kim Jong-un, the son, might not matter at all. But we don't know who would take over, and we don't know much about them either. You know, it's a very opaque regime. In the broad sort of geopolitical world, whose problem is this? Well, this primarily should be a problem of countries in the region. It matters most to South Korea. They are the target of most uh, threats and anger from the North Korean regime. It matters to China because North Korea is a Chinese ally. China wants to keep North Korea around, but they would like to have a more reliable, a more pliable, a more responsible leadership. It matters to Japan because they've had bad relations with Korea. They worry a lot about a potentially nuclear uh, North Korea, especially one with missiles. All of those countries, it matters a lot more. We're involved, but we're primarily involved because we have troops in South Korea. We don't have the same kind of involvement that the other countries have. North Korea is not in our border, and North Korea is not capable of hurting America. We could destroy them you know, easily. Other countries in the region are a lot closer and a lot more nervous. Doug Bendow is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and co-author of the 2004 book, Korean Conundrum. You can read more of his work on foreign policy at Cato.org.